Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. on this one because i missed an episode <laughs> i'm kave i think i'm saying that correctly today on the the house of pod this humor adjacent medical podcast we are talking boosters boosters baby um i got mine have you got yours we're going to talk about some questions related to boosters maybe the future of boosting and to do that i have some special guests first time guest Jeff McElroy, Dr. Jeff McElroy, Jeff, Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeff, how, who are you? How do I know you? What is our relationship? Who, who are you? So I am a medical oncologist by training. Um, however, for the last several years, I've been working in the biotech industry, uh, working in both pharmacovigilance and clinical development. Um, and I am also your brother-in-law. Is that true? It is true. Ask your sister. Okay. Wow. Wow. Your kids have actually been on the show. Allie, intern Allie has been on the show twice, I believe. Yep. What's that? I was going to say, you, you've had the better parts of me already on your show. My my son, Allie, and my daughter, Farida. Yeah. But yeah. no, no, they weren't available. Or, or you would not be here. I know. I know. You're, you, were, you were scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so uh, there's a, a, another McLeroy filling in. Well, I love you, buddy. I love you like a maybe a distant cousin. You're like, you're like the Tom Hagen of the Hoda family. Uh, that's a that's a deep that's a deep Godfather cut for you guys. <laughs> um, also joining us today, we have two returning guests who I really have always enjoyed every time they come on, and they're they're great. We have Ed Nuremberg, 
science communicator with a focus in vaccines. He writes this blog called Deplatform Disease. And Ed, I really enjoy your blog. I'm not an avid blog reader, but your blog, I really actually do read and enjoy. So thank you so much for coming on, buddy. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for the kind words. Um, also joining us, returning uh, champ, Dr. Neuro Fourier. I'm not going to do the French pronunciation because apparently I do it very badly. I was ridiculed for trying last time, so I'm not going to do that again. Infectious <laughs> disease specialist and global health technical lead at the CDC. As you might have guessed, Dr. Neuro Fourier is not his real name. It is his pseudonym that we're going to be using for this episode uh, to protect the innocent and not so innocent. Um, Dr. Neuro, how are you? I'm peachy. Hopefully everyone's doing well here. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, it's okay here. It's been incredibly hot here in the Bay Area. It, the weather just broke here, thankfully. It was oh like 90 degrees in San Francisco, which is like 130 to anyone else. We just were not prepared for it. And uh, I do not like the heat. I think people uh, expect that because I'm like Persian that I can handle like, like I part camel blood or something like that. <laughs> but I do not like the heat. I do not like it one bit. And so the weather has now finally broken. We actually had some rain because of whatever weird global climate change is happening. And I feel much better. So I, I hope you guys are, how are you guys doing wherever you are at? It's a balming 72 degrees right now where I'm at <laughs> in the Midwest, which is good. I, 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 it's as far, this is tolerable as a temperature I can deal because I am not a heat person because I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm the person that if you fiddle with the thermostat anywhere above 70, I will notice and run down and smack your hand and say, no, turn it back down. <laughs> is is oh that why temperatures above 70 indoors make me homicidal? Like just <laughs> Jeff lives in the East Bay here in the Bay Area where he like routinely reaches like the hundreds. So yeah. he's he's used to it, right? I'm I'm used I'm used to it. And and we are, we have some serious ozone destroying ACs over on this side of the world. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we we make fun of of Kave and his heat intolerance. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't. I'm I'm an, I, I sweat easily. All right, let's get to the questions. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys some questions. Let me start with you, Doctor Neuro. Yes. Who should get the updated boosters? Um. So that could be a very tricky question right now, given the context. But let's just stick with like just in general what's been uh, approved by the EUA. So it's twelve and up. Um, that's been approved for the new bivalent boosters um, for at least Pfizer and 18 and up for Moderna. But so you could just overall group it by 12 and up um, for the most part that's been approved so far for the new bivalent booster. And is there a time that has to elapse between the last dose or infection with Omicron? So the e <laughs> we can get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of this, but um, right now, the EUA is approved for two months after um, since your last injection or you know, uh, just injection in general, in general. We don't specify that. But in, you know, in recent talks with kind of the community in general, um, you know, based on like recent infections and just in general, what we're seeing from a population health immunity perspective, um, we you know, I, I think the magic number seems to be for the most part three to four months. Uh, you know, since your last infection slash dose within the recent past few months uh, that we would recommend getting the new bivalent booster. 
in regards to to immunocompromised patients, anything different um, as far as advice regarding the booster, how it fits into a, a two or three dose primary series? So in terms of immunocompromised, so right now we're essentially treating this as it doesn't matter what number or dose that you last received. It could be your third, fourth, fifth, does not matter. Uh, it is still recommended that you should get this new bivalent booster um, as soon as you are able to, uh, given the circumstances. But I mean, usually for the most part, we ask, you know, most people who are immunocompromised to definitely confer with their, you know, a, you know, primary care practitioner to ensure that it is the optimal timing in this case. The other thing I would mention, though, regarding immunocompromised people is uh, those who are moderately to severely immunocompromised really should receive Evusheld every six months. But I also do want to place an important caveat there because uh, so Evusheld is basically this long acting monoclonal antibody combination therapy that is given before a person has COVID. And it's been shown in studies to significantly reduce the risk of infection and hospitalization uh, for those who cannot make effective response to the vaccine. The issue is that, you know, the virus is mutating. And right now there's a variant growing in, in prominence throughout the U.S. called BA 2.4.6 and it appears to completely escape Evusheld. So it should not be viewed as a substitute to the vaccine, but rather an important adjunctive measure taken to ensure the health of the immunocompromised. And even if they, for instance, are on B-cell depleting therapy, cannot generate effective antibody responses, even if they can get like at least some cell-mediated immunity from T-cells from the vaccine, that could still go a very long way. So at the time of this recording, the virus is still killing about 400 people per day in the United States. And we have gotten millions of boosters out to these boosters targeting Omicron. And they're out to pharmacies and nursing homes. And I don't feel like there's been a lot of fanfare about this. I feel like, you know, uh, it might be sort of under the radar. I am one of the few people I know that's actually gotten the booster. California, I know, has delivered about 397,000 doses. Texas, 116,000. Illinois, 137,000 plus. But it doesn't feel like it's getting quite the same uh, response. Maybe that's just me. Do you guys feel that people are just exhausted with the concept of getting more boosters? How do you guys feel the response to this booster has been? <laughs> um, Ed, do you want to start this? <laughs> you and I are very charged on this topic, but... <laughs> I have many thoughts. I think, if I'm perfectly honest, I think that exhaustion is a very convenient excuse when really we have not done an adequate job of mobilizing the resources we have available to ensure that this very critical medical countermeasure makes its way to members of the public. Uh, we really have not done an adequate job of communicating about the booster, and I think that's directly related to our job um, at communicating about the pandemic more broadly. I mean, if you, you know, looked at headlines at all, Biden just declared the pandemic is over, you know, so why bother? What's the point? And right. um, beyond that, you know, there have been a lot of theoretical concerns uh, in terms of the immunology of the booster that I think we'll probably discuss a bit later that I think have dampened some of the enthusiasm and some of the experts, I think, have really... Um, said things that have harmed confidence in the booster, uh, I, and I would argue quite inappropriately. Um, but that's just my quick summary. What do you think, Dr. Ang? I mean, I, I think you kind of really hammer most of the summary points, but I mean, one of the many um, 
things that I want to reiterate again is the fact that our first booster campaign was not the best. Um, we thought that I, I, will, I will stress again that it was not the best in terms of rollout wise. Um, we still have many groups of population that have yet to receive their first booster. Um, and then even a smaller proportion, but still not as significant in terms of like finishing their primary series. Um, you know, I, I think one of the many, I think one of the many challenges right now is that we, um, and in the community in general, you know, in terms of like the, the vaccine research and immunology and immunologists and infectious disease um, is really trying to pin down this overall message of what is the ideal schedule and what is the ideal time to get these boosters? What we're what we're grappling with and something that you know I constantly argue with a lot of folks about is our immunological landscape within the United States in general, and it's even more complicated within the world, is growing more complex. Um, we have people all over who um, are immunocompromised and you know some that aren't even identified. We have those who have been boosted, those who have been infected, um, and how we develop those guidelines is has been such a confusing mess that a lot of folks don't even know if it is something that they need to do or not. Um, and I just think that really one of the many things, and this is actually one of the many pauses I feel the bivalent booster from the approval aspect really did was it, it really kind of reset the uh, kind of time frame and said that it doesn't matter what dose, like as long as you complete your primary series, I don't care what dose you have. It's two months after and you start this, and you start this new bivalent booster, period. And I, I think that really we need to get to a point where we set the cadence and rhythm as to how we pursue that. But I think a lot of it is, it's just like, you know, with the world kind of really honing in on a lot of specialists and a lot of folks who are having these really in-depth technical discussions on, you know, online, I, I think a lot of people are hung up on very several words like, you know, imprinting um, or original antigenic sin or uh, whether if um, even a booster provides a marginal benefit or not. And I, I think what ends up happening is that people end up questioning whether if it is truly an impactful benefit or not. And um, I, I think one of the many things that Ed and I are very big on, and we're very much on the same page, is that like, you know, right now, there, regardless of the minuscule risks or the non-benefits that we're identifying here, the benefits from a population health perspective is astronomical. And we, we tend Absolutely. to always forget that. We always forget this and we never communicate this and we don't communicate strongly enough that um, from an individual perspective, we might not see as much sometimes, but from a global, from a population and global community perspective, we do see benefits and we need to reiterate that strength over and over again. I, I agree, but I also think you're maybe taking a more optimistic perspective of what drives <laughs> Americans than I am. Yeah. <laughs> because, because to be honest with you, I'm not sure we're ever going to convince Americans to do this for their fellow Americans. I feel like I, I feel like we uh, the push for 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 me for the first I mean remember when the first vaccines came out and people were posting I'm getting this for my family. I'm getting this for my coworkers. I was like, man, I'm getting this for me. I don't want to <laughs> get this thing. It's fucked up. I don't want to get it. And like and yeah. I, I I mean we have to also you're you're 100% right. Like we have to we're, we are in this together. 
not just America, but the whole world. We, we've that's become clear now with the variants, right? But like, I I don't know if we're ever gonna win by by getting trying to get Americans to focus on each other. That's really skeptical and very cynical of me. But I mean, I'm, no, I'm that's fine. Yeah. Uh, along I, those, I don't right. think if I could counter that for a moment, I agree that like asking Americans to do this for the generic fellow American is probably a doomed enterprise. But where I think you could have some success is to focus on that vulnerable person that we all have in our lives. You know, we all have grandparents, we all have people we know and love who might be undergoing chemotherapy, we might have people we know and love who have undergone splenectomies, who might have received, you know, anatomical gifts from a very generous donor. And focusing on that person, you know, focusing on what you can do to keep them safe, not like in a vague sense, but very concretely, I am doing this because I love this person in my life and I want to do what I can to make sure that they're around for as long as I can have them. Yeah, very smart. Yeah, well said. And, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this one thing, and this is something I share constantly with many folks, is that, like, I want to share the story again of when Omicron decided to, you know, <laughs> as I colorfully put, decided to come in and snatch Delta's wig and throw it on the ground. Um, but <laughs> Omicron... Explain, you're going to have to explain that to Jeff. He's an old... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking from a, a drag race reference, but you okay. know, uh, <laughs> okay. gotcha. But, okay, go on. Um, but I, I'm thinking in the, you know, when we look at, you know, how Omicron really came into the scene, it 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 swooped into the American public, general public, I will say, without warning, and it it you know eclipsed Delta so quickly that you know by the time we really kind of mobilized the campaign, and I, I still stand by this phrase is that by the time you see the first patient go into a hospital with that specific variant, it is too late. And yeah. I say this again with this, you know, with what we're seeing right now with BA275-2 and any of the other variants that we're monitoring currently is that there is concern and that we don't, we have uncertainty in terms of the future of what the variants are going to do. And we have this ridiculously great opportunity right now to really jump ahead of the curve to get the bivalent vaccine out and get folks on the bandwagon before something like an Omicron wave two decides to pop up this year. Um, and I don't wanna say like it's some, there's some seasonality to it, but I just think right now we, we, we can't uh, take you know, this lull for granted and we should take advantage of, you know, of this situation right now to get as many folks vaccinated. And you know, you're right, very right in that for folks who probably aren't going to vaccinate or refuse to vaccinate, at this point right now, I don't think we're going to change the hearts and minds of those folks. But what we can do is our best, and I don't think we're doing our best right now as you know the health community. And I think we could do much more. Um, I know we're very exhausted. I know many of us are burnt out. Right. Um, I sure as hell am. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah. No, it, that's a that's a real problem. That's a real yeah. problem. Is we don't have the the spunk and the energy that we used to. I, like I'm not getting into arguments trying to convince people anymore. I'm just like at this point, I'm like, all right, fuck it. If you don't fucking want to get your vaccines, do, so, get, so get let, out so my let, face. Let, let me let me let me speak to a. a so it's e it's easy to have the anti-vaxxers and the people who who agree with everything we're saying here, but there there's a fair amount of intelligent folks in the middle. People in the middle who are up, up on their primary series, have gotten boosted, but they have this, this feeling that, you know, I don't want to be vaccinated or boosted every four to six months. You know, can we come up with something like once a year? And yeah. Kaveh's kind of 
smiling because he he know he knows that does this, that does this person's people... does this person's name this imaginary person does it rhyme with Rath Rackleroy? It's you. <laughs> no. It's you. It, it, well, it, so, so I'm somewhere in there. So I'm I'm I I was I was stubbornly waiting for the for the for a bivalent because I I had it this issue that, that nobody could fully explain to me why we were going to continue to boost against an ancestral, you know, variant and, and with this expectation that it was going to do a lot. And, and I know, trust me, I'm not anywhere near the science like you guys are, but, but my mm -hmm. point is, is, is what, what we, we need to be able to message to these people who they're not irrational. They're, they're, they're intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, they're wanting to do it, but they, but they're kind of like not to the degree where they're going to do everything. Uh, that we say so it, so if you have that crystal ball like what what is the absolute bare minimum where we could still move the needle from a public health perspective and people get vaccinated i think that's kind of where we need to you know that's not ideal but that's uh, uh, uh you know something that's practical that could yeah. be and it's the yeah. ground that we probably need to establish at the minimum for the next few months and i think that what you're hitting on really is a you know, those who are truly hesitant and, you know, those who are very, very hesitant. Um, and, and there is a lot of validity behind the hesitance within the population, right? And I think a lot of it stems all the way from the first booster, the, you know, whether if we needed to, you know, provide that or not. I mean, I think a lot of people tend to forget that in the first instance, the FDA, you know, the VERPAC within the FDA denied the, you know, utilization of a booster and because they felt that there wasn't a need at that time based on the epi data. Um, but obviously that changed over the course of time. But yeah. I, I think, again, one of the many, one of the many things, and I think from a, again, from a general population perspective, we're probably not going to be able to communicate this effectively because it does require a lot of nuance, but it's the aspect of reactionary versus, you know, getting ahead of the ahead of the curve right now. And it's hard to communicate to the general public of this, you know, this wave that hasn't even happened or this, you know, impending doom, if you want to think about right. it, that hasn't right. really happened. And I, I think that that's one of the many, that's one of, that's where it gets very tricky about it. And um, again, part of my reason is I'm, you know, you know, what I do a lot on Twitter and everything is that like, I'm not here to, you know, push people to really aggressively get the bivalent, but I'm trying to, what I try to do as well is communicate my confidence in the bivalent vaccine. And I didn't get my, I didn't get a second booster, right? Like I, I got my first booster last year. I got infected with COVID probably three, four months ago. So I was just in that right cusp of time to get yeah. the bivalent booster. And for me, like I iterated all these points to say that despite all of this and what we have seen in the literature, what we've seen in the data, that I'm confident that this is something that is going to be the right next step. And I think we as a community, and I say this as we as in the medical, the public health, the communicators that are out there, that we just need to be much more out there talking about the confidence in ourselves about it. Because I think right now, what a lot of the public sees is that a lot of hesitation amongst even our own community. Um, and there's a lot of discussions on whether if it is, you know, worth our time to get vaccinated or not. And I, you know, in the end, I'm just saying, what the hell with it? I, I do believe that this is the time and I don't, I don't have a crystal ball to tell you what's going to happen next, but that uncertainty still gives me the heebie-jeebies and I'd rather get ahead of the curve and have nothing happen at all than to be, you know, 
cough my pants down like Omicron did and have to, you know, be worried about what the next step is going to be for our, you know, already like still recovering health systems as it is. Along those lines, let me ask you a question, Ed. Can you explain what the term imprinting is and how it applies here? So this, this is a term that is like sure to give any immunologist a headache. Um, so if you want to see what that looks like, go, go ask an immunologist, but I'll do my best here. Um, so basically in about 1960, there was this guy named Thomas Francis, and he saw that when he gave people flu vaccines, they tended to make the best responses to the strains of flu that they saw in childhood. And he called this original antigenic sin, which is a really stupid name for it. But basically the, the modern form of it is what some people call imprinting. And it basically says that the first encounter you have with a given antigen shapes all your future immune responses to similar antigens. Because what's gonna happen is you have memory cells that are gonna focus on conserved parts of the new antigen. So here, the major concern that was raised was we won't be able to have good responses against Omicron because everyone's already seen the ancestral spike protein in the vaccine and original androgenic sin is going to block those responses from you know protecting us. That really does not seem to be the case. So basically, imprinting is a theoretical concern. Um, it can affect our response to boosters. In this case, though, even with imprinting, even though it is happening, it does not seem to put us in a net negative position. So in Europe and Canada, and I think pretty much the rest of the world, their version of the bivalent includes the uh, ancestral, the OG, and Omicron, but the BA1, one the original Omicrons. Whereas in the US, we're using uh, a bivalent that's looking at uh, BA4 uh, and 5. So it's, um, it's, I know there's a little more information, a little more data on the BA1. It's been around longer. And I think that's why these other countries are using it. There's more data on it. Um, you like how I said data, not data. You should get points for that. Anyways, <laughs> but the uh, but the US is going for a four and five, kind of trying to be, I don't know, what, what's the term, skate ahead of the puck or some some something like that. But we're trying to be uh, trying to be uh, ahead of the game in that. What What do you think about that? Is that the right step? Do you feel confident with that? Do you feel like it might be a risk? Or how do you feel? I think it is the right step, although I will tell you that while the FDA was deliberating slash right after they announced it, I sent Peter Marks a very lengthy email arguing with him that he should have the FDA authorize the VA1 booster immediately and allow a second dose for those at high risk about a month after the first one. Uh, he never replied to me, which is understandable. He's a very busy guy. Um, but I do think all things considered, this is the right move. And I think that it stands to pay off significantly. Um, what we see consistently is BA4, 5. Well, first of all, those are the dominant variants that are circulating right now. So it's going to be the first time since like, what, January 2021 that our vaccines more or less match what's circulating or they have like spectacular efficacy. So yeah. that can only be a good thing. Beyond that, it's clear this virus is going to keep mutating. So the name of the game as far as the immunology is how do we get the broadest possible response to cover as many variants as possible. And the preliminary data, the quote unquote preclinical data, but also what we see with breakthrough infections is that BA4, BA5 spike broadens the immune response more than does a BA1 spike. That's not to say that the BA1 boosters are bad or anything or that they won't work well. We don't quite know that yet. Uh, and they already did meet superiority criteria over the ancestral booster in their clinical trials. So that it's very clear that they are an improvement. But I do think that the BA45 ones should have a bit of an advantage over them. 
let's move on to um, uh, some different questions. We got a lot of questions. I actually have some listener questions also to get to, but let's get to one that's pretty common, uh, which is uh, if you've had Pfizer for all your prior vaccines or say it was Moderna, can you switch? Uh, so you can, uh, but there is one asterisk. So for Pfizer, um, that is authorized down to age 12. So if you are younger than 18, you cannot get Moderna yet because the Moderna booster that you have to be at least 18 for. But otherwise, yes, you can switch. What about Novavax? Can people get that you as a booster? You cannot get Novavax as a booster right now. It is not authorized as a heterologous booster for any of the vaccines. If you start with Novavax, you have to get Novavax. And, and for Dr. Neuro, do we have any word or any thought on when boosters are going to be available to people under 12? Um, <laughs> that's a very hot topic button right there. Um, we're hoping, based on some of the discussions we're hearing from many folks, is that either end of this calendar year or, you know, maybe at the latest January or around that time frame um, for those who are younger. And I think, but I think what we're going to be trying to do right now is really um, gradually expand the EUA as like new data comes in and as we're reviewing it just more aggressively to um, really make sure that we are getting the pediatric population um, as quickly as possible. So that is about as much as I can say, <laughs> based on what we're seeing, um, you know, with like some of the cl clinical trial data as we've seen in Moderna and Pfizer. And Ed, you've talked about this a little bit in your blog. Can you touch on this as well? Yeah, um, so I really want these vaccines authorized for kids. Uh, I have a nephew who is my favorite person in the world. He's younger than five. And it is just agony, you know, waiting and knowing that like, I can't, we can't get him the protection that like everyone else is entitled to have because, you know, of his age. Um, so Peter Marks did say in a CDC IDSA clinician call not that long ago. And he's the head of the FDA, right? Peter Marks? He is the head of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, which is the part of the FDA that deals with vaccines and antibodies and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, so he did say that he is expecting at the latest, um, somewhere in the winter, possibly end of 2022, uh, possibly beginning of 2023 for the updated booster to become <clears throat> available for kids down to six months. And he also said that he anticipates that uh, boosters for kids five to 11 are several weeks off, but that's all he said about it. Uh, there have been times in the past where like he couldn't disclose everything apparently like I remember with Novavax there was like something related to their de the delay in their approval that he couldn't reveal because of the Trade Secrets Act so he I guess has to be cryptic about it um, hmm. but that's all we know for now. You you got you guys have I think I think hitting on some things that are really important to comment I obviously my my kids are grown but I've got a niece and well a niece now and, and many nephews who, who are all young so we're all anxiously awaiting um those opportunities for them yeah and i hear i mean like i get a lot of concerned parents messaging me daily about you know when we will see that and i, I i'm with ed that i would love to see it as quickly and as you know rigorously and as quickly as we can do it as possible um for that so we we need to make sure that what we're rolling out for the peats population is safe and, and immunogenic so let me touch on something that Jeff asked a little bit about earlier, which is why are we still using an ancestral spike protein at all? These bivalent boosters,
why aren't we just focusing on like a vaccine that's bivalent but has different Omicron variants? Uh, what's the reason behind that? I think I'll let Ed take this one just because I loved his response when I think someone asked this to me <laughs> a few days ago. Yeah, uh, this was like, I think this is a little bit of like tea leaf reading, to be honest. Uh, I did watch the bird pack meeting when they like discussed the strain selection and that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Impact me where they were like, yeah, yeah, we should put Omicron in it, and they were vague about it. And then Seaver was like, BA45, everyone gets BA45 and the ancestral. So the vibe I got from it was basically, we know that the ancestral vaccine works really, really well against the pre-Omicron variants. It just does not do as good a job against Omicron, uh, at least as far as infection is concerned. So the idea is if we just gave the entire population a Omicron booster and they made really, really good responses to Omicron in this fantasy world where like everyone got their booster, then we could inadvertently give a fitness advantage to the pre-Omicron variants, uh, which would go on to infect people and cause disease. Whereas if we, you know, hedge our bets and include the ancestral component with it, we're kind of covering all our bases. The other thing is uh, Moderna did mention that when it did bivalent boosters, it consistently saw better responses for all of the variants. But the unusual thing is that Pfizer did not have that result. So I'm not sure what that's about. But basically, the FDA is trying to be super, super cautious about it. I do think that a monovalent uh, BA45 vaccine or even like a B1 BA45 vaccine uh, would have been entirely reasonable as well. Uh, but this is what we have to work with. And it's definitely not a bad option. Mm-hmm. Let, let me pose a question that I saw on your blog, Ed, and I'd like both you guys to weigh in on this because it's a question that actually the other doctors from notable institutions, say you're from UCSF or Stanford, I heard the boosters were approved based on only data from eight mice. Is that true, guys? No, um, this is really a really gross distortion of the truth, I think. Um, there is, so because, so the FDA had this issue, right? They had the option of like authorized BA1 boosters immediately, basically, or like for the winter or whenever, or they could have asked them to update the vaccines to match them more closely. And they decided to go with the latter. The thing is that the trials for the BA1 vaccines, it took about seven months from the time we identified Omicron to get the results from those trials. If we wanted to use BA45 vaccines and waited another seven months, that would have been absolutely ridiculous. We would have forfeited any advantage that this booster could have given us in that time. So what the FDA did instead was basically say, okay, we will approve this booster based on preclinical data. And that included an immunogenous 
the assessment with eight mice. Um, specifically, there were eight mice that received the bivalent BA45 booster. There were eight more mice that got the BA45 monovalent booster, eight more that got the BA4, BA1, excuse me, monovalent booster, and then another eight that got just like the ancestral one. And that was part of the immunogenicity preclinical data. The issue here, though, is that people want to treat this updated booster as though this is a completely new vaccine. And that is just ridiculous because it's frankly not. I mean, half of it is literally the same exact vaccine that we've given billions of doses of around the world. So it's, it's really just not that different. Beyond that, we've seen what BA4.5 infections do, and we haven't spontaneously observed like any new hazards arise with COVID infections from BA4.5, which reinforces that the inclusion of those spike proteins, especially in like a pre-fusion stabilized form, would be safe. And we also have direct clinical trial data from BA1 booster showing that the safety profile, the um, immunogenicity or the reactogenicity is broadly similar to the ancestral booster. So this is a platform that we have incredible an incredible amount of experience with. I think there are probably more publications on mRNA vaccines at this point than there are for any other similar vaccines between Pfizer and Moderna. And we know it really well. We know exactly what safety issues could arise from it. So yes, the safety, the approval of these boosters did involve an immunogenicity study of eight mice. It is wildly misleading, however, to say that that was the only consideration. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Neuro, uh, any anything to add on that? I mean, you know, Edward kind of really touches on a lot of like you know some of the miscommunications about this, but. I think one of the things I always stress again is the fact that our pharmacovigilance here in the United States is like top notch. We are very vigilant and we are, we are so tight on terms of like figuring out if there are any safety signals of concern should something like this come up. And again, I want, I think for the folks who are the naysayers based on some of the, you know, assessed risks for that we've seen before, which, you know, we're not diminishing those risks, right? Such as myocarditis, but Again, we know what the cohort that typically has a higher risk of that. And our due diligence is making sure that, you know, one, we are communicating those, you know, those possible risks, but we are assessing safety on an ongoing basis. We don't just assess it in one time frame and we stop. We continuously monitor that. Uh, you know, and we are always constantly like, you know, in reevaluating our processes, whether if it is something that, you know, does warrant us to stop administration should we observe something. I, I think people tend to forget the fact that once again, for the J&J &J vaccine, once we observe safety signals from the blood clots from there, we stopped that vaccine immediately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think people forget that this was because of that pharmacovigilance that we, we really assessed right. that safety. And this, that process, by the way, will not change. And it will be there for God knows how long. And I hope it stays that way because this is the best way that we can uh, monitor safety and you know confidence in these vaccines. And it's why I got you know my bivalent booster and my flu vaccine at the same time. Uh, one just because I was lazy, I didn't want to go back to go get my flu afterwards. But you know, I I, well, I think that we are that. So 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 a lot. So speaking of which, I know this is an end of one, but how did you do with the getting the flu vaccine and the uh, the the booster at the same time? I was fine. I had very minor aches, uh, a little slight chill, but you know, within less than 24 hours, I was playing video games and chilling 
at home. No, no issues. So <laughs> I, I will say this. I got my booster and I, I did fine. I mean, of course, I'm extraordinarily tough and manly. So <laughs> that is not a surprise. No, I mean, on the opposite, uh, you know, I'm such a wuss and and I did fine, actually. So there there is something to be said about that. I mean, nothing past my normal baseline level of shitty feeling. So like it, it was fine for me. I know, of course, this is an another N of one, but like I I. I for me, it was actually very uh, chill, probably the most chill of the boosters or vaccines I got. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a question. When, you know, as science communicators, as medical communicators, how, how do you guys find that balance between you know, sharing that kind of information with, say, the public or not so general public? I mean, obviously, there's plenty of people who have MDs or PhDs who can misconstrue some of that, that information. But how do you guys find that balance between communicating an accurate message, but not creating a situation where, you know, people are going to run away with these trains of, the, you know, this has been all approved on eight, on only eight mice. For me, I, you know, one of the things, and Ed, could you can add into this afterwards, because I know you and I have talked in length about it, but it's uncertainty about a lot of these processes and making sure that we're communicating what we do know and what we do not know. Um, yeah. I think what you see in a lot of these folks who are constant misinformers or disinformers is that they speak in absolutes or speak in these uh, misconstrued relative risks in such mm -hmm. a way that it can be construed as absolute risk. And I, I think what it comes down to as us being responsible communicators is that we are very clear about what we do know and definitely always saying that like, hey, there is, we're not denying the fact that there are risks. We are not denying the fact that these, these are the stuff that we do not know. However, um, here's the stuff that we do know, and this is the reason what leads me to have confidence and, um, you know, what, what gives me that, you know, justification to move forward on this, so. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I don't really spend too much time thinking about it, to be honest. My process is basically I write everything I know at the time. And then I take out the details that I think that only like basically no one would care about, like the super super nerdy immunology, like the cytokines and everything, because I think that makes people's eyes glaze over. Um, but basically, I just try to be um, comprehensive about it, and I try to be very explicit, point out what the uncertainty is. Like for example, we know that this booster very clearly has an advantage over the ancestral one. We know that this booster will broaden our immunity. What that will translate into clinically, as far as effectiveness, as far as disease burden transmission, long COVID, that kind of thing, that is not currently well understood. And we can speculate, but we can't give a concrete answer for that right now. All right. Let's let's uh, close out with some listener questions because they're going to touch on a couple of the, the questions that I, I had. Um, and we'll just do a couple of these. Here's one from Karen Percy at Karen Percy one Based on what I'm reading on Twitter, there's definite confusion on the timing based on recent COVID infection. And she has another question, which is, I'm hearing rumors that after this booster, we will transition to this being more of a once per year situation, similar to the flu shot. We kind of touched on the first part, uh, which is when you can do it, but maybe let's just readdress that real quick. When you can do it, if you've had infection and do we think this is going to be an annual shot, basically? Ed, if you want to take the first part, I can probably take a talk to the annual schedule aspect of it. 
Sure, that sounds good. Uh, so when you do it, uh, I just want to be clear about this. The timing, the questions about timing are more related to getting the most out of the vaccine rather than any safety concerns. The issue is that like if you're just recently infected, your antibodies are really, really high at their peak and your protection from basically any COVID, any SARS-CoV-2 infection is going to be very, very high. And when your antibodies are that high, they're going to, first of all, suppress the production of spike protein by the mRNA vaccine, which means that your immune system doesn't really get a target. And beyond that, when you don't let your B cells return to their resting state, um, and it takes a couple months for that to happen, they just kind of ignore the booster. Uh, and this is actually shown in a really, really excellent preprint from the NIH's Vaccine Research Center, uh, which Dr. Fauci actually contributed to. So for that reason, uh, we say that the CDC and FDA both say at least two months, Two months, to be honest, though, is probably a bit short. Uh, for most people, four to six months is probably a good window. Uh, more than six months is also uh, a good idea for sure to get boosted like immediately. Um, if you maybe have an event that would put you at high risk for COVID, for example, getting a booster like two to three weeks before would be a good idea because that would be roughly the peak of protection uh, as long mm -hmm. as it's been like at least three or four months. So um, it, it's it's a complex calculus. And I mean, for detailed questions, for detailed guidance, you know, always reach out to your primary care physician to help on those questions. But in general, uh, four to six months is reasonable. More than six months is also reasonable if it's been that long since your last exposure. Uh, less than two or three months, probably a bit short, probably better off waiting. Okay, here's one from Bone Wizard the Magnificent. <laughs> Oh, we didn't address the um, annual booster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. Let's, let's <laughs> I was do that so one. enraptured by the answer. I was just like, me too. Oh, yeah, it we was answered really great. <laughs> sorry. Go on. Uh, no, I, I think, you know, one of the questions I constantly get from many folks is like, whether if we're going to be doing this as a yearly scheduled booster. Um, you know, I, I think one of the many challenges behind doing a yearly booster, because, like, you know, we have a system that's so fine-tuned with the flu vaccine every year in terms of surveillance and translating that to, you know, you know, uh, animal models and then obviously to a vaccine that we mass produce so quickly that it's not something that we, I, I think that what we're going to see stumble on is kind of replicating that for uh, the COVID vaccines just because we utilize multiple technologies and, you know, obviously there's like going to be some challenges behind there, especially given the fact that, you know, even though the flu does mutate faster, like given the fact that COVID has much more of an advantage in many circumstances worldwide that I think we're going to have to, we might have to entertain the idea definitely for sure to do a yearly vaccination reevaluation. And that's part of the, you know, the FDA meeting that was held like several months ago to look at the possibility of drafting up a framework to do a yearly schedule, but whether how, I think part of it really is taking a look at and see how the next few months pan out. But I think part of it really is, you know, that framework is evaluating how we're going to be doing with this bivalent vaccine um, and how the variant landscape is going to look like. Uh, you know, we have we have a lot of data, but, you know, right now there's a lot of uncertainty into the future of like what variants hold and that can drastically change how we, you know, define our path forward on developing these like next iteration of the vaccines. Excellent. So along those lines, here's a question from P. Tuller at P underscore Tuller, T-U-L-L-E-R. If you have time, update on the other versions of the vaccine in development, like oral or nasal, for example. And then he adds, I honestly think Ed's D-Platform article answered most of my other questions, which is an excellent, by the way, I really do point people to Ed's 
uh, blog and his Q&A, which is where I got a lot of the questions for this episode, um, where he goes over the boosters. But can you guys speak about upcoming vaccines, things they're working on, like the nasal or mucosal immunity sort of things? Uh, so <laughs> this is a complex uh, area. Um, China and India have both released uh, their first mucosal vaccines. Um, I have not seen any data for India's vaccine, which is by Bharat Biotech. And as far as I'm aware, it's basically the AstraZeneca vaccine, just squirted up your nose. Um, <laughs> for Ch China's, I've seen they use an antivirus 5 uh, vector vaccine that like you kind of inhale, basically. Um, it's not quite a nasal spray, which potentially should help. The issue is that that vaccine is based on the ancestral spike protein. And for some reason, they decided to go with an adenovirus 5 vector. And adenovirus 5 is the most common serotype that almost everyone has immunity to. So using that here where it could like suppress uh, the immune response by immunity to the vector, it, it seems like an odd choice to me. I did see a preprint with the data from it, they, I personally did not find really encouraging regarding Omicron, but they are harder to interpret in general because it's hard to correlate mucosal antibody titers with sperm antibody titers, which is what everyone does. Um, for instance, like the intranasal flu vaccine consistently seemed to give poor antibody responses, but at least for a while um, was much more effective actually at preventing flu than the injection. Um, so, you know, it's still, uh, it still has a lot of promise. It's still something that's worth pursuing. I think that prime and spike is a really cool idea that um, Akiko Iwasaki's group came up with at Yale. Basically, you give the mRNA vaccine and then like one to two weeks later, you give a nasal spray of just the spike protein, no adjuvant or anything. And this has the effect of basically pulling in the immune cells that you just elicited with the mRNA vaccine into the nose. Um, and it seems to drastically enhance protection. And you can even, they showed that in mice, if you saw one spike, they got ultra broad protection. So it definitely is an important and promising direction. Um, but I, I do worry about the state of funding for intranasal boosters and everything, especially now that we've decided that the pandemic is over. Um, <laughs> I think that, that that is going to really hurt um, progress in that because for the most part, what I'm seeing is most of these intranasal vaccine candidates, they're being led uh, by, uh, you know, bench researchers and universities and academic medical centers, that kind of thing, not really big pharma uh, funding itself to mm -hmm. do that research. So without congressional funding to the NIH and everything to support those endeavors, I don't know how well they're going to go. Uh, same thing for pan-sarbicovirus vaccines, which is especially appalling because I know that there will be a SARS-CoV-3, but I don't know when. Mm -hmm. Right, right. All right. Well, one last question. And this is from Bone Wizard, the Magnificent at underscore Bone Wizard. Coffee, I was I was worried that we were going to forget about Bone Wizard. You can't forget he, he about was a Bone couple Wizard. questions ago. No, no, no. I I had to call an audible because like, you know what, what a good host does is Jeff. I'm explaining this to you, buddy. What a good host does is they take what comes at them and then they alter the questions based on that. It's listening. It's listen. It's what I do. Is why I'm so good at what I do. I listen and then I react. So just so, gonna, bone, just so bone wizard knows, where uh, I'm watching out for. We never forgot about bone wizard. Bone <laughs> wizard. Never forget bone wizard. Never forget bone wizard. Said that name a lot. <laughs> bone wizard is getting a lot of free press here. What should I do to avoid being sick as a dog the day after my booster? Signed, a very stressed and busy med student who can't take the day off. Well, I wouldn't know because I'm so tough. I never let these things hold me back. But um, what, what do you guys say? Like, I get this a lot. People are asking, 
hey, can I take Advil or Tylenol, et cetera, after the um, the vaccine? What, what do you guys say to this? I'll tell you what I say too, but I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. You can take, you can certainly take Advil or Tylenol afterwards. I mean, I know there was some contention at the beginning of the pandemic when we were first rolling out the vaccine, but to date, I have not seen much data showing, you know, uh, a tempered immune response from taking an Advil or Tylenol afterwards. And, you know, again, like I can't, again, this is going to be my communication side coming out is the fact that we can't tell everyone what they're going to, what their side effects or reactogenicity is going to look like after these new bivalent. Uh, con, you know, consistently we've seen in many of the studies and data that uh, these new bivalent vaccines, regardless of which bivalent candidate you're looking at, typically has a lower reactogenicity profile. Um, if it's something where you have a history of high reactogenicity, uh, you know, especially with Moderna being a higher dose, uh, consider getting the Pfizer one. Um, but if it's not, then I wouldn't, I, again, I don't think you should be as stressed as much about that. But I think, again, one of the many things I tell most folks is that like, you know, if generally, and I say generally in a very hand wavy way, but like, you know, for those who are immunocompetent, um, you're not going to, you know, I don't foresee you having something where it's going to be knocking you out, like for two, three days, like for the first two doses of the primary series, like we've seen in a lot of people. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. My anecdote, which as we all know is the best kind of data, is <laughs> that everyone seems to tolerate this booster really well for the most part. Um, I definitely agree, you know, if, this is, if mRNA vaccines uh, in the past have been pretty tough for you, which is, you know, totally understandable, they are pretty rough in their reactogenicity. Uh, Pfizer would definitely be a, a preferable option over Moderna. Um, it seems to consistently be gentler in that regard. Um, you can definitely take time on ibuprofen, just like Dr. M said. The one thing, it, Dr. M said, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, you can definitely take those. The one caveat to that is some people would be like, well, you shouldn't take them beforehand. And I think that's reasonable just because not everyone has tough uh, reactions to them. So like just taking it beforehand, you might not even need it. And there is like a theoretical risk of like taking it beforehand could blunt antibody responses. That's been observed like with other vaccines, but not really at a level that's considered clinically significant. Um, also just hydrate well. And you know, if this is something that like you really think is going to be hard on you, if you can plan it for like Friday or night and like you have a whole weekend to like deal with it, that could help. I'm, I'm assuming, hoping that Bone Wizard, uh, the, the Magnificent has a weekend. Um, so Bone yeah. Wizard, we're all pulling for you, buddy. And right now there's a couple people who are just catching the Dr. Ensay joke. Um, it was a good one. It I totally didn't one. mean that. <laughs> no, no, you're next level, bro. I get it. I get it. You're next level. Okay. On that note, we should probably close it up because Jeff's already disappeared off the chat because he didn't charge his phone and he's probably his phone just died. <laughs> he's probably somewhere out there desperately looking for a charger right now, but it's okay. We're going to be done by the time he comes back. Let me, um, before we get to the plugs, because I definitely want to plug what you two guys have. Um, let me just say that we are going to have, oh, he's coming back. Let me let him in here. And, and Jeff is back. Very good. Okay. So before we close, I want to plug some things. First, I want to plug the next episode of this show. We are going to be doing an episode on medicine in movies. So I'm going to be having <laughs> some special guests. We're going to have Dr. Glockenflecken, who you're either going to be like, oh, that's really cool. It's Dr. Glockenflecken. Or you're going to be like, who the hell is Dr. Glockenflecken if you're not on the internet? And that's fine. It's cool either way. The other guest- You is have be... me on the episode before Dr. Glockenflecken 
and not on the same episode to meet <laughs> like, one of my heroes. I'm sorry, man. I'll make sure oh he God. knows. Friendship over. I'm I so can't. sorry. Like, I'll make it happen. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll make it happen. Absolutely. Also joining us will be Michael Weber, uh, Oscar-nominated screenwriter of 500 Days of Summer, The Fault in Our Stars, The Disaster Artist, one of my favorite movies of all time. And he has a new movie coming out. He's going to come on. We're going to talk about two movies. We're going to talk about Doc Hollywood and a 1971 Ooh. movie called The Hospital with George C. Scott Patton. And uh, we're going to discuss those two movies. So please get a chance to review those movies. Take, watch them if you can. I'll put links on our Twitter page to where you can find them if you can't find them. And uh, I'll also be soliciting the best and worst medical scenes in movies and TV as well. Now, let's get some plugs in for you guys before we close. Ed, um, again, I've talked about deplatform disease a lot. You've written for things like Time Magazine. You don't like talking about it, but I am a big fan of yours, and I want people to read what you have to say because honestly, it's really good. So, can you tell people where they can find you? Uh, well, mostly I'm on Twitter. My handle is at e Nirenberg, like my name and my first initial. Um, and that is probably the easiest place to reach me. I think, yeah. And deplatformdisease.com. Check out the blog. I really uh, do recommend it. Uh, and Dr. Uh, Francis. Oh, I'm sorry. I said your real name, Francis. Oh, I mean, Dr. Neuro Fourier. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Psych. <I was> like... <laughs> Psych. That's not his real name. Dr. No, Neuro no. Fourier, where can people find you? You can find me on primarily Twitter and uh, Twitch, uh, but they're both different handles just because I'm still in the process of transitioning my brand. But uh, mm -hmm. Twitter, you can find me at Neurofoyer. Um, you can, I'm not even going to try to spell that whole thing out because that's always a nuisance. But you can also find me on Twitch as well as Dr. Underscore Neuro. Uh, you can, uh, where I do engage people live, um, answering questions and uh, discussing the latest as well. Um, and Twitter uh, primarily as well, where I do try to share as much as I can without <laughs> having an issue in terms of like what's going on in the world of CDC and, you know, from a global health perspective and um, a lot of stuff going on, but you can reach me on both. Dude, when are you going to have me on Twitch to do something? I want to do Twitch. I want to be young. I want to be hip. Why, why can't you? <laughs> we can make that happen. We can make that happen. Yeah, let's do something. That'd be fun. I want to be introduced to what the kids are doing. And Jeff, because you're so old, I know you have nothing to plug. But well, actually, actually, this has been so wonderful because these two gentlemen are obviously much younger than you. Yeah, that is. Oh, you're so sweet. That's true. That when you're younger than my younger brother, it makes me feel quite good. So. <laughs> this makes you older. I don't know why you're happy about that. Yeah. That just it lumps, my... it lumps you in a category with me. All right. All right, we are in the olds. Okay, um, you guys, it really an awesome as always uh, discussion. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, I please uh, just promise me now to the HOP crowd that you're going to come back someday. Only if requested by popular demands. What's more popular than me? And Doctor <laughs> Doctor Neuro. I don't know. You won't have me on the same episode as Doctor Glockenflecken. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. he's gonna give you shit for that for I a know. while. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, oh, you pretty God. much you're pretty much stuck with me, so don't worry about that. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. You guys rock. Right, Bye. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. 
The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.